0: Welcome to the Trinity's Podcast, where we explore theories about the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit.
1: Do you love God enough to think about Him? Episode 78, Mr. Chad McIntosh on the Trinity as a Functional Person. Mr. Chad McIntosh is a PhD student in philosophy at Cornell University, and I'm pleased to say that he's a new contributor to the Trinity's blog. He holds a bachelor's in philosophy from Calvin College, and he blogs at Appeared2Blogly. Last week we had the pleasure of meeting Mr. McIntosh, and this week he's back again to talk about his forthcoming paper in religious studies called The God of the Groups. This paper explores an interesting new variety of social Trinitarianism. Mr. McIntosh, welcome back to the Trinities Podcast. Thanks again for having me. As we discussed last time, there are competing interpretations of traditional Trinitarian language. What is the social interpretation, what people call social trinitarianism?
0: Social Trinitarians think God is three persons in the sense that God is, in some sense it is, three distinct minds where each divine person is a unique center of consciousness with an irreducible first-person perspective, an I, that can stand an I-thou relationship with another person.
1: So these are not people who say things like the word prosopon in Greek would often mean a mask that an actor would wear, or people who would say that the persons of the Trinity aren't probably aren't persons in the modern sense of the word, right? These are people who just say, no, they are selves, or in Cartesian language, they're minds, they're thinkers.
0: That's right. So when social trinitarians they go, say God is three persons, person here is used in roughly the same sense, and we, we wouldn't ordinarily think of the term person. God is a person, or like the Unitarian God anyway, or uh, maybe a uh, superhero, Superman is a person. I'm a person, you're a person. Hobbits are persons. What's common to all of these ideas is they have like a self-conscious, irreducible first-person perspective, I think. And that can be morally responsible, uh, they have free will, uh, these ideas.
1: And at least in recent times, sometimes they will compare the Trinity to three men, or to a wife and a husband and a child.
0: Right, because they imagine the three persons of of godhead as intimately related to one another like the social unit of a family or a very closely unified team so that that's right that's that's kind of where the social moniker comes from the social
1: interior. it's like as if god is a society or a group as you said that acts in a highly unified manner now this seems like it's easy to understand that there are three selves or three persons or minds and it fits well together with the friendship or the interpersonal relationship that's portrayed in the New Testament between the Father and the Son. So, what's not to like about this?
0: Well, the problem is, if God is three persons in that sense, then presumably we can't think or talk or relate to God as a person, in the same way we can't think or talk or relate to a team or a committee as a person. It's confusing when social trinitarians refer to God as opposed to any of the three individual persons using singular pronouns like he, him, and you. Because there is no person, no one subject to which those pronouns refer. And we naturally do refer to God in those ways. We also praise God. And not just the individual persons, we praise the triune God. But only persons are praiseworthy. So that's a problem. And it's something of a dilemma. Either the triune God, as distinct from the individual person, is not praiseworthy, or else the triune God is also a person, which is one too many persons for Orthodox comfort. So, in short, God is either not praiseworthy, or God is not a trinity, but what's been called the quaternity, being four persons, not three.
1: So, that seems like a pretty tough dilemma where either you have God being merely a community or group, which but that's not how we use language about God, or how arguably most Trinitarians think about God, or you've got four persons, but then, as you said, you've got Quaternity and not Trinity. So why isn't this just a a refutation of the social way of understanding the Trinity?
0: Well, I think a lot of people would see it that way. I don't, obviously. Pasker and Craig don't, because they think there's a bit of... they take a little bit of liberality with the language, and they engage in uh, what Daniel Howard Snyder, Snyder calls if, as ifery, right? Uh, we talk as if God is a person. Uh, we relate to God as if you are a person. As ifery talk, they don't see as problematic. But uh, I, I do think there's a problem here that needs to be taken more seriously than Pastor and Craig.
1: Right. So say you're watching NFL football one Sunday and your team gets crushed. Say it's the Buffalo Bills. This happens often. Maybe you would say, referring to the Bills, that he had a bad day or he wasn't himself today. But, you know, that would be a strange way to talk. And even if somebody did talk like that, we wouldn't take it literally. Right. We would just say that the person is personifying a group or again, uh, You know, if every member of the team is married, it doesn't follow that the entire team is married. Mm -hmm. The entire team isn't the kind of thing that could even get married. Right. Or a team full of bachelors isn't itself a bachelor. Uh So if you say, well, that team is a bachelor, I mean, you could talk like that, but you would probably confuse a lot of people if what you're really saying is that everybody on the team is a bachelor. If you say it's a married team, then... That would be just a confusing way of saying that everybody on the team was married.
0: Yeah, that's right. I think there are times when it's clearly not literal when we ascribe intentional states or certain properties to groups, like in all of your examples. But I think there are other times when it makes more sense to do that. Like uh, imagine, like a General Grant in the Civil War. I think it would make in, in his uh, maybe a squad he sends out on the field. I think it would, and that gets annihilated by by Lee's squad. It would make sense to say that uh, Grant had a bad day. And we're referring to not Grant the person but we're referring to the squad that got annihilated. I think that that makes perfect sense to refer to a, a group of people
1: in that, in that way. So in that example you are describing a group as if it were an agent or an extension of Grant, right, the general who sent them. And you say, Grant did poorly in the battle because all those guys were killed in the battle. Yeah, that that makes sense, but...
0: I don't mean to speak that way as if the squad were an agent. I'm prepared to say that they, the squad is an agent, not just as if it's an agent. So I, I'm willing to go further than the, as if we talk.
1: If the squad is an agent, then, I don't know, a squad of 12 guys or something, then what the squad does is not just reducible to what each of the guys does all added up, right? That's exactly right. But if the rebels wipe out the squad, I mean, they've, they've killed exactly 12 people. Mm-hmm. There's no, isn't there no 13th casualty, which <laughs> is the whole squad? Right.
0: Uh, so there are all sorts of um, funny and amusing, thing, amusing things you can do with this. And here I think there's an obvious answer that depends on my distinction between functional person and intrinsic persons all these amusing anecdotes, you know, can you murder a corporation? Can you be thrown in jail for, for disbanding a group of people? No, because group persons are not the kind of persons where those sort of rights and intrinsic values apply. So it's kind of like when you ask these kinds of questions that that subtly make fun of group persons, the concept of group person. it's like you're mistaking one person for another. You know, you've, you've probably mistaken someone you've thought you knew before you know it's like hey so and so and they turn around it's not who you thought it was and you feel embarrassed i think there's something going on like that when these sorts of examples are poked poked at the group you're confusing one kind of person for another which uh i think can be cleared up when you have the distinction on the table
1: okay so then go back to my example say that there's one particularly uh aggressive rebel soldier and he he goes berserk and he takes out the whole squad and uh, he goes back to general lee and he says i would like a medal because i just killed 13 union soldiers in your view he'd be making a mistake because one of those 13 isn't the kind of person who could be killed although he was annihilated right
0: yeah yeah he was annihilated but I mean, that annihilation is not always murder or, or killing. That's right. So he's not, he can't count, he makes a mistake in counting in that sense, because he's only counting what I call insurance persons later on. He's not going to be counting a functional person uh, on his on his death
1: toll. Okay, so I've I've got you to wander off a little bit here with the Civil War examples. Anyway, back to the dilemma. Either God is not the kind of being who can be worshipped, or God is a person who can be the recipient of worship. Mm-hmm. But then you've got God, and then the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, which gives four divine persons. So mm-hmm. say a little more about this distinction you make and how it gets us out of this dilemma.
0: So rather than say that God is not praiseworthy, I say God, in addition to the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, is also a person. But this doesn't commit us to an unorthodox paternity. Um, But a little stage setting is required to see that, though. So first, let's go back to what persons are. I think it's safe to view the concept of personhood as a family resemblance concept, like Wittgenstein's famous game example turns out it's futile to try to carve out precise, necessary, and sufficient conditions for what counts and doesn't count as a game. No matter how hard you try, there always seem to be these testy pes- 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 counter examples. There are different kinds of activities whose similarities overlap enough that we group them together under the general heading game. We call that family resemblance concept. But nevertheless, we can safely identify at least some sufficient conditions for what counts as a game. For example, Whatever's played in one spare time plausibly counts as a game. Similarly with personhood, given the flexibility of the concept, extremely dubious to me at least that there are precise, necessary, and sufficient conditions of personhood. So historically there have been many different kinds of persons discussed in the literature, uh, like biological or moral or legal, or Lockean or Cartesian persons, it's safe to say that anything that's morally responsible has free will or is self-conscious, I think it's safe to say that these are sufficient conditions of personhood. But there are different ways a thing can come to meet one or more of those sufficient conditions. For example, an entity could meet the sufficient condition of being self-conscious just in virtue of that entity's intrinsic nature. Alternatively, an entity could meet the sufficient condition of being morally responsible not in virtue of its intrinsic nature, but in virtue of its function. So we can call entities that meet sufficient conditions of personhood in virtue of their intrinsic nature intrinsicist persons, and entities that meet sufficient conditions of personhood in virtue of their function functional persons. Very creative labels, we'll I know. Um, but examples of intrinsic persons would include all the kinds of persons we discussed earlier: Cartesian egos, or angels and demons, centaurs, Superman, Hobbits, and most obviously human beings, fetuses and comatose included. These last two examples uh, help clarify the idea of intrinsic person uh, really well. The fetus, despite all of its unrealized potentialities, is still a person because it has a certain kind of nature. A comatose patient, though they've lost all of their function, is still a person for the same reason. It's got, a, it's got the right kind of nature. Now, robots, uh, by contrast, if they ever become so sophisticated that they acquire first-person perspective or become morally responsible, um, they would therefore count as persons, but not because of their intrinsic nature, but because of their function. And the same goes for a multiple personality patient's alter egos. They are functional persons because they meet sufficient conditions of personhood. Well, at least least one or several sufficient conditions of personhood. And so most importantly in this category are groups. Groups, I think it's possible, um, can behave in a way that can meet sufficient conditions of personhood. So the way this applies to the Trinity is this. Uh, My proposal is that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are intrinsicist persons, whereas the triune God is a functional person see, this doesn't run afoul of the paternity worry in the following way. God is not four persons of the same kind, but three persons of a kind, and one person of another kind. And according to Orthodox thought, the three divine persons, or hypostases are homoousia, of the same kind or nature. The Son and Spirit are whatever the Father is, and that, I take it, is what I'm calling an intrinsicist person. But notice that this leaves open the question of whether they might together constitute a person of a different kind, a person that's not a of god. And that's exactly what I think happens. The individual persons constitute a group person, that triune God meets sufficient conditions of personhood, such as being praiseworthy, in virtue of function. So to put it more succinctly, God is three intrinsic persons in one functional person.
1: So I've heard some, for instance, Trinitarian apologists say that God is three Whos and one What, but your view is that it would be, there is one What there, one Usia, one Essence, mm-hmm. but also there's three Whos of one kind and another Who of another kind, and the other Who is the Trinity. That's right. Do you like to
0: distinguish Trinity theories? by uh the number of cells that are involved you have like one self theories three self theories well my view it falls into neither of those camps my view is is, i think a a four cell theory
1: well i think given what i mean by self i think you've got three of those it's just that that's not all you have right Your three selves are selves, which are selves because of their intrinsic nature, Mm -hmm. which you didn't say anything about that just now, but your fetus example and your comatose patient example, I take it the point of those is that they have the same ultimate capabilities as ordinary humans. So to be a human self, you have to have abilities to be aware and to think in certain ways Well, the fetus or the comatose patient have those abilities, but they just can't exercise them or something like that. Isn't that right?
0: Uh, Well, there's a certain kind of nature that grounds those capabilities. And it's that nature is what I think makes them a person.
1: Okay, so the nature is maybe a universal that's present in them, and it's because that's there that they have the powers... Okay, but anyway, it's it is something intrinsic to the to the individual. Yes. Yeah, I mean that's what I mean by a person. I don't I guess I don't acknowledge the possibility of functional persons. But you you have said there are two different conditions that are sufficient for being a person. Because
0: uh, these two. There're more
1: than more than just two. Mhm. And one of those is a matter of functioning Can you say a little bit more about that? I mean, what kind of functioning? I mean, if there's three persons and, I don't know, they always get into fights, well, that doesn't seem to make them a fourth person. Or if they trip over each other, that doesn't seem to make them a person. So what kind of functioning would be required to get a fourth person to exist because of three intrinsicist persons?
0: My idea was there are different ways something can come to meet. A sufficient condition of personhood. One way is to have a certain kind of nature. Another way is to function in a certain kind of way. And let's just take a group, uh, like a group of three individuals. What would be required for them to function in a way is to become a functional person, would be to be epistemically unified uh, in certain ways, to agree on lots of things, to have a plan to be able to ready to put a plan into action and to act in coordinated, highly coordinated, unified ways, to be prepared to act as a group in response to new information, to speak on behalf and to go out and carry out the plan as a group, not uh, as oneself, but on behalf of the group. So the group has to be unified in a, in a behavior sense, but also in an epistemic sense. Does that makes
1: sense? It makes sense, but... I mean, I'm not trying to be irreverent, but I, I have in mind, you know, the Three Stooges. And <laughs> given what you've said, I'm just thinking, well, they, they do have a kind of epistemic unity and a kind of functional unity, but we don't want to say that they compose a Fourth Stooge, you know? I mean, I wonder what you say that's more, that prevents the conditions that you gave... Uh, for constituting a functional person sound too loose to me.
0: Okay. Well, the, the stooge example, I don't think they would ever ever really be unified in the way I have in mind to, to constitute a fourth person, a uh, functional person, because their unity is more spontaneous and more unpredictable, and they as a group are, are amusing probably for that reason. Whereas the kind of groups that I'm imagining become functional persons are unified in a very tight and rigorous way. They have guidelines and principles that guarantee certain attitudes and behaviors that will be outputs of the group. It's much more restrictive, I think, than just having three random people uh, bump each other on the nose and trip each other and all that.
1: (laughs) Well... Yeah, I mean they might be disposed so that if I come up to them and smart off to them, the three stooges, you know, one of them insults me, the other one gets behind me on all fours, and the third one pushes me backwards so I fall over the the guy, the guy behind me.
0: Yeah, you you do have a certain kind of unity there, but um, it's not a unity that um, it's it's more tra- that's a more transient version of unity, whereas the kind of unity that I'm imagining um, that's necessary for group to be an agent or a person would have to be more uh, structural in place that could guarantee the unity of that group across time uh, and across different situations.
1: Okay, so it has to be more constant and uh, you said more tight. Can you give some non-theological examples of the type of functional unity that you have in mind?
0: Yeah, sure. So here's an example we can imagine. Imagine a socially-hit restaurant called Organicopia. And Organicopia's vision is to support the community by serving uh, only local, uh, healthy, vegan food products. Uh, and it's perfectly possible that uh, none of Organicopia's staff, uh, including its owners, uh, share Organicopia's vision. They might not care with about uh, all those hipster things. And I think a very easy... Uh, and straightforward metaphysical hypothesis to explain this is to say that organicopia simply has beliefs and desires and other employees do. And organicopia really does believe that the local economy and residents should be supported in a certain way and really desires to support them in those ways. Organicopia acts on those beliefs and desires by buying and serving local healthy vegan products. And it's properly organicopia. That buys and serves those products. It's not its staff. And so, if I'm at uh, a philosophy cocktail party uh, and I start boasting to my hipster friends that I buy local, supposing I work at Organicopia and, and order its food, they would call me out uh, on that. They'd say, No, you don't buy local. You buy local on Organicopia's behalf. And they'll be right about that. It's true that the way a group acts is always through its members, but insofar as a member is acting to achieve the group's end, it's the group that acts. So by assuming these representative roles, the members of certain kinds of groups can serve as a group's mouthpiece and hand. And as long as you have that kind of functional capabilities, I don't see any reason to think a group can't behave in a morally responsible way and supposing moral responsibility is sufficient for personhood, as I think is plausible, uh, we should then see group agents as not just agents, but persons, but functional persons.
1: So if it's plausible that, say, corporations, companies, businesses can literally be morally responsible for actions, then they perform actions, and they're the kind of beings that can be responsible, namely persons. Mm -hmm. And so similarly, then the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit would be praiseworthy for their actions, and so then they must constitute a person, because that's the kind of being that can be praiseworthy for actions. It seems that there's a Parity of reasoning. So you might think what's most obvious is that corporations or companies can be praiseworthy and blameworthy, mm-hmm. but then if they're praiseworthy or blameworthy, then they act. They do things right. for which they're praiseworthy or blameworthy. Right. But then if they act, they're actors. They're the kind of beings mm-hmm. that can be subject to praise and blame. That's right. So in the case of the Trinity, you would say that it's obvious that the Trinity is praiseworthy for what it has done for the human race, and so then the Trinity must be the kind of thing which performs actions and which can be praiseworthy, which is a self or a person. That's right.
0: When we praise the triune God, I think we're praising not just the three individual members of the Trinity, I think we're, we're genuinely praising the triune God. That entails that the triune God is the, is the kind of entity that can be praised and so must be a person.
1: Now, you haven't mentioned this. There's a traditional saying, it goes in Latin, omnia opera trinitatis ad extra indivisa sunt. Right. All the works of the Trinity with regards to other things are indivisible. Do you agree with this saying?
0: Yeah, yeah, I I agree with that, insofar as uh, I understand that phrase to just be referring to the doctrine of appropriation. Um, Even though uh, one member of the Trinity, we appropriate, some action to that person, such as becoming incarnate, I think it's no less true that to say that the Trinity um, becomes incarnate, or is responsible in some sense for that action as well. It's not just the Son that, that's responsible for that action. I think we can appropriate the action, many of the individual members, to the Trinity as a whole.
1: There's surely some cans of worms there.
0: Yeah, a lot but of cans I, of worms.
1: <laughs> I don't think we should pursue it. <laughs> okay. Mr. McIntosh, what would you say if someone wasn't buying your Civil War example or your example about the hippie restaurant Organicopia? What would you say to a person like that? Does that mean that they can't accept your suggestion about the Trinity?
0: My thought is that if there's any group that could meet conditions of agency or personhood on account of unity and structure, it's the Trinity. Even if there are no worldly groups that meet conditions of agency and personhood, I still think it's possible to think Trinity could, because the practical obstacles that might prevent, like, a worldly group from meeting those conditions would not be obstacles to an ideal group.
1: In a couple of articles published in the 2000s, I argued that if the Father, Son, and Spirit were a social trinity, that is, a group of three selves, then they would have wrongfully deceived the ancient Jews by causing them to believe that they were one divine self named Yahweh, even though they were in fact a group of three divine selves. How do you think this sort of objection can be answered?
0: Well, I think it's important to get clear on a crucial assumption behind the objection. The objection assumes that the ancients had roughly the same concept of personhood that us moderns do. A conception of personhood where talk of group, a group person makes little or no sense at all. So the argument works only if the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit caused the ancients to believe that God is the kind of person that can't be a group person. And I think that assumption's wrong. Um, not only is there no good reason to believe they had some near the conception of personhood, I think there's plenty of good reasons to think they had a conception of personhood broad enough to recognize the existence of group person. And interestingly, there are many examples in the Bible and in ancient Near Eastern literature contemporaneous with the biblical writings that suggest they believe in corporate persons. Old Testament scholars have argued that it's everywhere under the surface of Hebrew thought, um, underlying things like uh, practices like covenants, blood guilt, let right marriage, group holiness, and collective responsibility, and a whole bunch of other things. Um, but maybe some concrete examples would help. So frequently throughout the Bible, we see cases where individuals represent a group and groups represent an individual. I'm thinking here of the unchaste woman of Ezekiel 16 and 23, of the wife and mother spoken of in Isaiah 54, Gomer, of course... And uh, most interesting of all, the divine human figure of being up heaven. And in the New Testament, we have, uh, of course, Paul talking about the body of Christ. And what's significant there is that the Jewish understanding of body, soma, wasn't neatly distinguishable from person. Uh, So some commentators have pointed out that when Paul said, you, speaking to the Church of the body of Christ, it must have directed their minds first and foremost to a person, uh, a corporate person. It wasn't. It wasn't immediately a metaphor. Uh, they say, so corporate personality, as it's called, also makes sense of other things in, throughout the Bible. You may have noticed, like uh, when an author seems to carelessly switch between plural and singular pronouns. In uh, Psalm 44, for instance, it begins uh, with the first person plural we, or us, and transition to the first person singular, I, or me, which might be confusing at first, but not when you realize the psalmist is crying out as himself and as the community. And a similar transition occurs throughout Deuteronomy, isaiah where the servant of Yahweh is both the prophet himself and the nation of Israel. He's speaking in, in both of those ways. But the most memorable example is in the New Testament, when Jesus asks the impure spirit, What's your name? And gets the reply, I am legion, for we are many. Now, an especially intriguing extra-biblical example of this is was found on a cuneiform inscription depicting Baal as three persons who is referred to in the same sentence with both singular and plural personal pronouns. Now, all that is really interesting, um, but does it really prove that biblical authors thought of God as a corporate person or a group person? Uh, not sure. Paul, including Jesus, into the Jewish Shema might suggest as much, but I- I'm not sure. Uh, what, what I am sure of is that all of this does show we can't just import our modern, unduly individualistic conception of personhood back into the thought of the ancient in the way that the divine deception argument requires. So, the biblical category of corporate personality, um, combined with the philosophical coherence of group person, I think makes for a very interesting and satisfactory version of social tributarianism.
1: So when the Jews are presented with Yahweh as a divine self, in your view, their mindset allowed for selves to be composed of groups of selves, and so then they wouldn't have been deceived because they would have realized that this self Yahweh may well consist of other selves. Is that right?
0: That's right. Even if they didn't um, explicitly recognize that, I think the divine deception argument requires them to have had a concept that would explicitly rule that out. And I don't think that's the case.
1: Mr. McIntosh, thank you for talking with us.
0: Thank you very much for having me.
1: Do you enjoy listening to the Trinity's podcast? There are four ways you can show us some love in return. First, share the blog post for this episode on whatever social media you use, such as Facebook, Twitter, Tumblr, or Google+. Second, you can leave us a rating and a brief review in the iTunes store and at Stitcher. Third, you can donate to the cause by clicking the orange Donate buttons to the right of any blog post. Fourth, you can send us some brief, to-the-point audio feedback for possible incorporation into a future episode. We would love to hear your question or your comment in your voice. The upload link for your audio file is on the blog post for any episode. To sum up, you can share, rate, donate, and talk back. Thanks to Josh Woodward for this week's Thinking Music a song called Anchor from his album, Ashes. You can hear more of his music at joshwoodward.com. Thanks for listening. We'll see you online at trinities.org. Till next time, don't forget to love God with all your mind.